Did you start both? Yeah, it's funny, but this, yeah, it is. Um, let's start, you guys. Um, just red light always on. I'm not noticed it. Uh, any? Are there any prayer requests tonight? For our nation. Yeah, I'm gonna. When I say prayers, I'm gonna pray for serious things here. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself through the day, your spirit with us. Um, especially now, we wouldn't be here in this um, gathering without you. But for all, for all the ways you draw us to you, serious stuff tonight in our work, um, very serious. There's a gravity to things, and it just coincides with, a, I think, a time of real worry for a lot of us. Um, tonight we ask a blessing on our country, um, terribly divided, um, I'm maybe speaking too much for myself. I think so many of us have a feeling that we've lost our way from you. It's like the Israelites, you know, disappearing again and again. Strengthen us to recover ourselves, um, and let the pandemic be a grace for us to bring us back, to examine our lives, to look at ourselves, to ask what's really important. Um, the importance we give our jobs and even our families. Um, um, at the center of our faith is a cross. There are all the sacraments. Um, help us all to be strengthened um, um, in all that we're doing. I ask for um, a special blessing of um, peace relative peace in the next week. Um, people are bound to be violent. Um, I ask for your protection spirit for the people. Um, um, do something to help cut down on the violence, likely deaths. Um, ask a special protection for people in um, law enforcement. Um, it's under such heavy attack. Um, people will be tested everywhere. Um, be with us in this period of trial. Um, help us to come out of it better. No matter what happens, let all of us here take a strength. Our faith is in you um, to do whatever it is you are asking of us and whatever will be asked of us. Tonight I ask a blessing on the work that we do together. Um, um, help quiet our hearts, give light to our minds. Um, lots of us have troubled hearts. There's a lot of difficult things going on. Um, help. <laughs> How do you take away trouble when there are earthquakes around you? The sea is tossing. Strengthen us, please, to trust in you. If to do whatever it is that's asked, give us the give us the courage um, to do that, to put away ourselves, um, um, to give our wills to your own. So we offer these prayers um, to you, Christ our Lord. Amen. 
Hi, Don. Debbie, hi. It's good to see you, Deborah. <laughs> Missed you. Um, okay, let's go because we've got um, we've got a we've got a serious poem here and some serious things with Lewis. Um, you guys all got my note, I hope, did you? And you all know how to get access. Just so you know, I changed the organization in the uh, in the literature's our blog. So if you go into the content page down to the bottom to St. Francis, you'll see our blog and then you have all the folders. Um, I took Lewis out of the natural tradition and I put Lewis out on that group of folders. So when you first go in there, you'll see Lewis among the others and then you can go in there. I think the notes tonight, the outline that I gave you should be really helpful to summarize what's at issue here. Um, I'll, I'll try to do it very briefly when we get through our poem. Um, but I think it's a good outline um, for any of you who've not looked at it. I want to get to this poem because the poem has had a, a, a dark razor-edged irony throughout it. As a matter of fact, I think that part of the meaning of the whole poem is irony. It's not a thing, it's an irony. But let me let me see if I can go through the poem very, very quickly to get up to Vespers where we are, okay? Um, Debbie, I don't know if you can hear me because you look on, but if you don't have a copy of the poem, just go onto our site, Literature's Prophecy, and then just, um, it's there, in the, it's there in, the, in the poetry folder. I'm going I'm to do this quickly because I, I want to be careful of our time. We've got a lot to do. You remember in... Um, in um, in the Hore Canonicae that, that Auden structured the poem according to the hours, the canonical hours. It begins, I'm going to roughly, quickly go through this to get to the... Um, hi, Linda. Tom. Hi, Thomas. Good to see you. Linda, get that guy back there where we can see him. Thomas, I, I missed that laugh of yours. Um, okay, opening the poem, opening the poem. He's just awakened. Um, I know that I'm here, not alone, but with the world, and rejoice unvexed for the will. This, I'm going to go through it, through the canonica, the hore, um, page by page, very quickly, to, to get us to where we were. Um, unvexed for the will has still to claim this adjacent arm as my own. Like he's waking up out of sleep. The memory to name me resume its routine of praise and blame and smiling to me is this instant while still the day is intact and I the Adam sinless in our beginning, Adam still previous to any act. So that's like in the garden before he acts because he knows once he will, he'll be back in a fallen world. Um, that the prime ends and my name, or he's, this ready flesh, my honest equal, but my accomplice now, his body, his flesh, my assassin to be, and my name stands for my historical share of care for a lying, self-made city, afraid of our living task, the dying which the coming day will ask. So he's coming to consciousness, the dying that the day will ask this. Hold on to that image of a lying, self-made self -made city as if we as humans created our own lives. You remember the terse, um, it, it, it describes the hangman and the judge and the poet going off to do what they can do. 
Um, bottom of page two, we are left each to his secret cult. Now each of us prays to an image of his image of himself. Let me get through this coming day, he says, without getting taken up or something. I, I think it's a it's a wonderful illustration of what Tom so often has called um, um, our false selves. You know, that we carry this false self with it. Page three at the top, for once there will be no squabbling, no Chthonian mutters, but no other miracle knows that by sundown we shall have had a good Friday. The hope is that they can just make this another day and get through the day. In sext, you remember, it describes the three groups. Um, um, and the last one was the, the one that seemed to be particularly ironic. Remember the group, the crowd that only sees one thing, which only the crowd can see, an epiphany of that which does whatever is done. Without even knowing it, it goes along. It's one with what's done. At the end, when have they ever ignored their queens for one second, stop work on their provincial cities to worship the prince of this world like us at this noon on this hill in the occasion of this dine? Now remember, it's every section either has an explicit reference to or implies a scapegoat. There's a victim that will be this day. We know, we learned that it's this is Good Friday, so this is Good Friday, but everybody else, everybody goes through the day just wanting to treat it like any other day. Knowns on page six begins. This is crucial. What we know to be not possible, though time after time foretold by wild hermits, shaman, sibyl, um, comes to pass before we realize it. We are surprised at the ease and speed of our deed and uneasy. It is barely three, mid-afternoon, yet the blood of our sacrifice is already dry in the grass. We are not prepared for silence so sudden and so soon. The day is too hot, too bright. We complain about all these things. Too still, too ever. The dead remains, too nothing. What shall we do till nightfall? So the act has taken place according to the canonical hours. It's three o'clock. Christ was crucified. Um, and then at that point, what he describes, remember, is everybody going on doing what they do, um, trying to pretend as if nothing happened. <coughs> that brings us to Vespers. And you remember, he, he begins Vespers. This is the 6 p.m. It's evening prayer. And it seems to me at this point, um, if, if you can look at each one of the prayer hours dealing with a specific theme, the theme here is the crucifixion has taken place, the scapegoat has been executed, killed, it's happened, now it's left us with attention. The act's been done. Um, we carry this tension now within us. It's inescapable. Okay, So Vespers begins with a description of the city. Remember, if the hill overlooking our city has always been known as Adam's grave, only at dusk can you see the recumbent giant, his head turned to the west, his right arm resting forever on his haunch. The fall is there in the image of the hill and the city there. Suddenly he a shift takes place and he describes these two people meeting on a path as if two paths crossed. He's one of them and he meets his antitype. 
So the two of them um, are set in relationship to each other in this moment. Bottom of page 9. For sun and moon supply their conforming mask, but in this hour of civil twilight, all must wear their own faces, and it's now that our two paths cross. Both simultaneously recognize his antitub, one to the other. I am an Arcadian um, that he is a utopian. They recognize that. They see in each other. I don't want to go through all of them. I'll just read a couple of them on page 10. Um, one identifies himself with Eden. Another identifies himself with the New Jerusalem. So what Auden's given us are the two, this is a little bit like Jung's, I think, collective unconscious, except it's not left as broad. What he's saying, what Auden is showing, is that every one of us carries within us Eden and New Jerusalem. And it's the tension between those two that makes up our lives. Everything we do is defined either in terms of an Edenic contentment or a utopian aspiring. I can put it that way. So he says on page 10, he notes with contempt my Aquarian belly. He's probably a little bit heavy. I note with alarm his scorpion's mouth. He would like to see me cleaning latrines. I would like to see him removed to some other planet. We can look at these two as, as the haves and the have not. People who are comfortable with their existence, very often that's suburbia. Those who are striving and constantly in violence because they're trying to get somewhere. We can say that's the inner city if we need an image. Um, middle of 10. You can see then why between my Eden and his new Jerusalem no treaty is negotiable. Go down. In my Eden each observes his compulsive rituals and superstitious taboos, but we have no morals. In his new Jerusalem, the temples would be empty, but all will practice the rational virtues. Anybody want to flesh that out? What does that mean? In my Eden, a person, no, sorry. Um, in my Eden, each observe his compulsive rituals and superstition taboos, but we have no morals. In his new Jerusalem, the temples will be empty, but all will practice the rational virtues. Anybody? Remember, I think what's at issue is, remember, the, this is sort of amazing. In, if we were each made in God's image, each one of us carries the, um, the image of Christ within us. We all look back to Eden. It's that perfection and innocence that we once had. But we lost it. And we strive for the New Jerusalem, something not yet. So it's between those two poles that all of us exist. Some proportion, some tension. Okay. Um, I think what he's saying in my Eden, um, but we have no morals, it's because all settled. In his mind, everything's settled. It's a little bit like a person who says, I have what I want, I've earned it, here I am, I can be happy, I'm content. At the other end, there are going to be those people who are committing violence in the streets because they don't have what they want. So we've got these two antitypes, each reminding the other that, that something's wrong. Okay. One reason for my alarm is that when he closes his eyes, he arrives not in New Jerusalem, but on some August day of outrage, when helicans cavort through ruined drawing rooms and fishwives intervene in the chamber, 
you know, when people carry on hell when they're created by, or even fishwives, those vulgar women, you know, in the marketplace. They they go into the chamber, which is you know the the legislative body where everybody everybody's doing something proper. Um, intervene in the chamber or some autumn night of deletions and noades. That was the practice during the um, French um, Revolution, when pe in a terror, <coughs> when people used to be executed, either they were beheaded or they were drowned. So the Nyades are the drowning. When the unrepentant thieves, including me, are sequestered, and those he hates shall hate themselves. That is, um, the Eden guy will go enjoy himself. The, uh, the New Jerusalem guy um, will, will experience at the end of the evening these horrors. And the fact that people will, will take their lives and then hate themselves for doing it. So with a passing glance, we take the other's posture. Already our steps recede, heading incorrigible each towards his kind of meal and evening. Was it, as it must look to any god of crossroads, simply a fortuitous intersection of paths? Was this just, is the fact that we keep running into an anti-type an accident? Um... Simply a fortuitous intersection of life paths, loyal to different fibs, or also a rendezvous between accomplices who, in spite of themselves, cannot resist meeting to remind the other to both at bottom desire truth of that half of their secret self which he would most like to forget, forcing us both for a fraction of a second to remember our victim. But for him, I could forget the blood. But for me, he could forget the innocence. On whose immolation, call him Abel, that's biblical, Remus, founder of Rome, whose immolation, whom you will, it is one sin offering. Arcadia's, Utopia's, our dear old bag of democracy are alike founded. For without a cement of blood, it must be human, it must be innocent, no secular wall will safely stand. Now, ordinarily, we don't give much time to lyrics, but we've got to take some time here because this is this is going to the bone too much. So I've got a couple of questions here. He's presenting these two antitypes. They're the poles of our existence. Everyone carries within us a longing for innocence. Some people identify with it. So once they've achieved their happiness, they're going to go through the world like everything's set. Except there's a half of the world that's not set. They're killing each other because there's something wrong. So there's this tension between these two parts. Um, and together they say something about the, um, the, what do you call it, the scapegoat. Okay. So here's my question. Um, he says that cannot resist meeting to remind the other, each one, because it's likely that both of them long for the truth, of that half of their secret self which he would most like to forget, forcing us both for a fraction of a second to remember our victim. But for him I could forget the blood, but for me he could forget the innocence on whose immolation it is um, one sin offering, Acadia's, Acadia's, Utopia's, democracies. Uh, how are we to understand 
the Eden guy um, identifying himself with that phrase, but for him I forget I could forget the blood. And what does it say about the other guy, the New Jerusalem guy, that um, when he faces his anti-type, he says, but for me, he could forget the innocence. How does each one of those qualities identify each of those two types? What is it about the New Jerusalem guy um, that reminds him of the blood? It was, it's only because he's there that he remembers the blood. And what is it about the New Jerusalem guy that looks at the Eden guy and is reminded of the innocence that he'd like to forget? How does that identify the two types? Is that clear? Each one of them reminds them of a secret self, something inside of themselves that they're only reminded of when they see the other. Why does the Eden guy says, but for him I forget, if he weren't around I could forget the blood, but he reminds me of the blood. And the other guy says, but for him, the Eden guy, I could forget the innocence. What is it about the innocent guy that calls to mind this innocence? These two well, reactions. I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab. Good. Um, it seems to me that um, for the the New Jerusalem guy, what he sees in that person is the innocence that the New Jerusalem experienced as a child, because children tend to be innocent, and so it's something I think that you always, if you see something that reflects you back to that, it you you remember that you see that. And as far as the the uh, other fellow, I'm sorry, I just lost him. Not the New Jerusalem, but but the other guy, the Edenic, the the Eden fellow, um, that he has already. One assumes that he has already passed through the trials and and all of the hardship and all of the things of life that life throws at you and has somehow come out the other side and now sees things as as being wonderful and so he can go on without seeing or trying to just simply block out the fact that all of the trials and all of the blood and all of the hardships that um, we humans have to go through and when he when he's confronted with this person he knows that he's experienced that. He knows that that is, in fact, true. That that there are um, difficulties, and there are things that aren't Eden-like. And so, he, because he he's probably experienced that, and so that he knows that. That's a stab. I have no idea if that's right or yeah. wrong, but that's no, a stab. Good. Is it? Is it? Um, or let me. Anybody else? Is it, is it clear to everybody that there's something false about both types? There's something wrong with both of them? And um, I don't, Tom, I don't know if, if you can hear me. I mean, I, you've spoken so often of the false self that people carry, and it seems to me this poem is um, beautifully going to it in a, with a, um, a razor's edge, but...
Any other doc? What's how, what's the difference between them, and why is it appropriate for the one guy to be reminded of the blood and the other guy to be reminded of the? How does each one of those qualities identify each of those men? I think at some level. Can you hear Suzanne? Can everybody hear her? Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. I think at some level that both of them glimpse, however subconsciously, the sacrifice. And that the guy who's the Arcadian, the one who prefers Eden, um, wants everything to be Edenic. He wants it to be peaceful, lovely, um, everybody's happy, everybody's healthy. When he sees a child with rickets, he turns his eyes away. He doesn't want to look at it. Um, what does that say about him? That he's looking back to Eden and he's not facing, as Debbie said, the suffering, the blood that's necessary in this world, particularly in the founding of the city. The other guy um, is not Edenic at all. He's um, probably angry. He's um, searching for a new Jerusalem, but it isn't the new Jerusalem of the Bible. It's the new Jerusalem of today's utopia. This is what this is what we have to do to to get where we want to go to, to fill to the have, temple. Yes, to fill the. Um, and he doesn't have any trouble with the blood. That's why he reminds the Eden guy of the blood. What he has trouble with is the innocence, because he wants to think of himself as righteous, as good, as going for the utopia for everybody. And so to recognize that doing what he's doing, the way he's doing it, is going to mean that some people who are innocent are going to suffer or die is what's hard for him. When he looks at a healthy child, he looks away. He doesn't want to see anything good about this world, um, but being faced with the guy from Eden, he has to recognize that innocence was the cost of what he's looking for. Sort and I, yeah, I would just that's add, my stab at it. Then. I would just add that I think to, to add to what Debbie and Doc have said, um, the problem is that the innocence is unreal in some level. The the guy wants to live in Eden as if it's real, but it's not. We can't go back, even though it's a part of us. There's something unreal about the innocence that he can go on in his life. That that's why they keep re reminding them of the second self. So. The guy who's got it, or you can make it the have and the have-nots, you know, however you want to break it down. The guy who's a denic thinks he's above things. He wants everything the way he wants them. He's at peace. There's not going to be trouble by anything. There's a falseness to that. There's a false innocence. Um, um, Mark, I don't... Um, can you call Mark, duck in your phone? Um, there's a falseness to it. And there's also a falseness to the utopian. Both, both of them are pulled towards what we once had and a perfection we hoped for, and they're living it 
um, but there's something lacking in both of them. So when each of them sees the other, they're going to be reminded of that other thing, that secret self, an innocence that's not real, um, a utopian desire that's um, in some ways equally not as real. Here's my question. Um, um, because he's saying these two men represent the, the, the poles of our entire life. They ex the, 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 see, the poem is very convicting. It's showing us that we want to we want to hold on to an Eden, we want to recover New Jerusalem, but there's something wrong. For without a cement of blood, it must be human, it must be innocent. Both only Christ could do that. There was only one scapegoat who could be a, both innocent and a sacrificial victim. That is standing in for somebody who was wrong, a sin. We we did that with Dante. Remember, Christ was innocent, um, but he took on our human nature, which was fouled it's it's only because he could do that that he could answer our sin um, so it says for without a cement of blood it must be human it must be in it no secular wall will safely stand so here's my question um, why is the scapegoat necessary for the city what's the what do we learn about the scapegoat every single one of the Every single one of the every every single one of the passages in this poem have either referred directly to a scapegoat or implied it. And remember, the 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 the, the forming image, the governing image of the poem is the city. It's what makes everything possible, and yet at the center of it is the scapegoat. Um, why is this scape? What is what's the significance of this scapegoat at the center of the city? Is that somebody? The two antitypes remind each other that there's something wrong. For without a cement of blood, no secular wall will safely stand. We we um, we raise our cities on a sacrifice. Who wants to admit it? I mean, in the poem, nobody's admitting that. Everybody's going about their lives, doing what they do. And the cost of it is a scapegoat. What's the meaning of that? Before we go on. We're back at the theme of the city again. That's where we started. Fred, any thoughts on that? Sorry, Bob. I I've been uh, distracted with this yeah. car out in yeah. front of the house. So we just had a car I, drive up I and missed some of your presentation. Yeah. Here. yeah. If you could give me a quick <laughs> summary of of the presentation, then I'll try to respond. Oh, <laughs> Francis, get him a glass of wine, please. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I know that you're partly laughing at me when you say that because you know there's no way I could give a brief summary. <laughs> My question is right now is why, what's the significance of this scapegoat? Why is he, what's his role? What's, what's he, he's been there in every section we've read. 
and it's yeah. given a cunning irony to every single section we've read. There's been this irony. Why is he so essential? Why is he present and everybody walking around him? And why did these two antitypes, each of them, remind themselves of some secret that the other brings to mind when they confront each other? Bob, is it, and I have no idea if this is on track, is it because the scapegoat brings them to the truth? Yeah, can you elaborate on it, Kathy? I just, what do you... You'd ask me to do that. <laughs> it took me all this time just to... <laughs> get, get to that, I know. I know. elaborate. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> but I think that this, that's important because, God. you know, um, I, I'm thinking of Christ as the scapegoat. Yeah, right. He brings us to the truth. Yeah. But if you have, you have humanity on each side, the New Jerusalem and the Eden are both basically closing their eyes to the truth, and yet your focus is on the scapegoat who's willing to um, make the sacrifice to bring them to the truth. Or he's the cost of their efforts. Right. Okay. Let me, let me put it this way, just if I can do this quickly, because to me it's... This poem is so convicting, it's, it's, it's just hard for me. I haven't read it through carefully until we did it together in this class, and now it's knocking me over. I, I can't wait to the end. One of the reasons I, I read it, I brought it up, because in, the, in one of the next sections, we're going to get um, Auden describing the perichoresis, the indwelling of the Trinity. Because everything to this point, to me, is absolutely razor-edged dark. It's a cutting, cutting poem. Let me offer this thought. To go back to our beginnings, you remember that the city was first created, Enoch, remember, when Cain was exiled. So it's our attempt to live without God. And let me try to put it more in terms of the poem. It seems to me what we're trying to do in the city is live a complete life. The self-lying city. Um, it's as if we're trying to live a complete life for a lying, self-made city. But we would like to go through our lives as if we're under control. We can make everything the way we want it. We can have our own world. We don't need God. And the, but the cost of that is separation from him. That we're living this lie. That we, create, we try to create this order. But there's some dishonesty underneath it all. And the cost of it is a, is a scapegoat. Somebody will have to pay. That was Christ. Here in the two antitypes, what, what's so powerful to me, because he's relating the scapegoat directly to the making of the city, for without a cement of blood, no secular wall will safely stand, that um, each of us tries to live a complete life. The utopian guy thinks he's already got it. Well, he doesn't. You know, that's not Eden. We lost Eden. And so suburbia, our efforts to have our comfort and, you know, whatever we want, and the Jerusalem, the striving for the utopia, as if we could bring a utopia into our world, and we can't. And yet those are the tensions that form our life. So it seems to me, the comment I made in the beginning, at least as I read the poem, it, strike, it seems to me the meaning of the poem is an irony. It's a, it's a, 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 to this point, it's a, it's a razor-edge irony. There's nothing that goes on um, that Auden is describing that doesn't make us aware that something's wrong and everybody's trying to go around it. That for us to try to create our own lives as if we could do it, 
is a lie. It, the cost of it is a sacrifice, Christ. And the irony here is it's Good Friday, and lots of people are just going through the day like it's another day. But here the antitypes remind them, each one, um, of their incompleteness, that there's something lacking in each of their visions. There is for the Edenic guy, the Arcadian guy, there is for the New Jerusalem, the Utopian guy. Um, so at this point, it just seems to me the, 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 even though he doesn't keep mentioning the scapegoat, the cost of it is there. This is the great city. This is all the great things we do. Um, when I actually think about the politics of today, it just strikes. It's hard for me not to see, you know, right and left, conservative, utopian, defined to a T. Um, that conflict, that there's something all of us are struggling for and overlooking the cost at this point. So at this point, it seems, now this is dark. This is the, um, I think it's the ninth hour, 6 p.m. It's 6 p.m. It's Vespers. It's nighttime. Things are getting dark. The central tension here is between these two anti-types, and Auden is reminding us that um, um, uh, that the cost of bringing in a, a city into existence, whether it's Abel, who sacrificed, or Remus, you know, in biblically or historically, um, there's still this cost. There's a scapegoat here. So next time we will do Compline. It's the end of the day. I don't know. If I'll, I think I'll probably just read it all. It's long, and then and and then we have the lauds um, to finish it. So we're getting close to the end. But um, these are the canonical hours. It's the image of the city and the importance of the scapegoat right at the center of it, even even though for the most part we go on about our lives as if there's nothing there. So, Any comments before we turn from it? I have a question, Bob. Yeah, go, Kathy. Okay, it's kind of what you're saying there is both sides in their arrogance think that they can manage on their own without God. I, I think that's a fair statement. I, um, I, I mean, I don't know that I'd put it exact myself, but I think that's a, a fairly accurate. It's that there's something wrong. There's some, I think the, I, trying to put the best face on something dark, there's something natural in our longing for an Eden. We had it once. We lost it. There's this deep longing for comfort and peace and, you know, at the same time, there is this longing in us for something more. Um, that's why Christ came. I think it's far more intense for us in Christians than it was for the pagans. You know, a pagan could get satisfied with his wealth and dignity and live his life out and be happy. I think it's hard for a Christian to do that because he knows the cost of it, at least as we believe it as, you know, as Catholic, is a cross that, we're, that we have a work so that we're involved in something like the New Jerusalem guy. There's a struggle to, you know, to... to um, Don, I think, said it, you know, when we were talking about um, C.S.'s Lewis essay a couple of weeks ago, that, you know, according to the old way, we live under these laws, but very often the laws were enforced badly. So we constantly need law reform. 
we have to try to do better what we haven't done. So it's, it's not like we can ever settle. If we, if, I said this from the beginning. If we ever settle in this life, we're in trouble. St. Augustine's image was a peregrine city. The church is in, it's in a journey. It's on its way. That's the church. Um, this is not our home. This is not our home. Our home is somewhere else. So Augustine's image of the city was a peregrine. It's a city in a journey. It's on his way. The church is the embodiment of that. That something in us longs for peace. Something in us strives for more. I'd, I'd put it something like that, Kathy. It's, um, I mean, it's you were saying the same thing. Um, it's this deep, deep tension in our soul. You know that because I, I mean I'm I'm assuming, I mean lots of people can be perfectly content with their lives. Lots of people are really wealthy. Uh, my own assumption is they're not happy, or they wouldn't be on drugs. They, you know they wouldn't be throwing the wild. I mean, God here here's Saint Augustine's image again. Um, how do you put it? My soul is restless until I rest in Thee. If God made the soul. If, if God created the soul with an infinite desire, there's only one thing that can quiet that desire. That's God, an infinite being. So no matter how content we think we are here, there's something we know. We, this is Boethius. It's not complete. When those antitypes look at each other, they're reminded that there's something wrong. There's some, I, you know, I almost want to go back to Boethius now. I don't want to get started because I do. I know Fred's going to get, going to go nuts. We're doing actually we're doing Boethius and uh, um, it's Eaton right now. It's really it's really good. I keep wanting to bring him up in this class, but um, can we can we stop here and any more? No, thank you, Bob. Thank thank you for yeah. going over that. It's a tough poem. And it's long, which makes it harder. It's just a very, very tough poem. Here, I'm, I want to try to make this short um, to, to, so we can get to C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man. Let me make this argument. You, if, you, if you got my notes, I think the notes are pretty brief and clear. The, in, a, in his um, Humanitarian Theory of Punishment, Lewis sets out the argument this way. There are lots of people today who are products of the sciences who say that the desert approach to crimes or wrongs is inhuman, it's inhumane. That cure, using a cure approach and therapy would be more humane, more merciful. Okay, I hope I think that's a fairly state clear, brief statement. Um, and they say that the that the traditional way. The way of describing it is, it's a it's a form of revenge. They say it's inhuman, and they're making the argument that um, their way of approaching wrongs or crimes would be more humane, more merciful. Um, you guys come in anywhere you want, but I just want to try to set this out because I don't want to spend any more time in this. I want to get to the end. I want to get the abolition. Lewis says not so. That's not so. That as a matter of fact, there are some elements to this. Um, cure therapy approach that are actually inhuman because it assumes a number of things. He says if we ever lose the idea of desert, of what we deserve, we end up treating human beings as less than human beings. And let me just give you a couple of the 
a couple of the issues that it seemed to me um, he raises here. Number one, any time we treat human beings, I'm going to go down the list and you guys pick anything you want to talk about. I'm, I'm glad to talk about it. What I want to do is put a cap on it because I want to get to abolition of man. Number one, any time we treat human beings as less than responsible for themselves, and that's the modern world, because you know according to the sciences we treat human beings according to determinisms, not free will. Anytime we treat human beings as being less than responsible for themselves, we actually end up hurting them. We take away their dignity. So instead of being more merciful, even though we'd like to see ourselves being kind, we end up being less merciful. We diminish man's dignity. That's one. The modern world tends to look at man as a product of forces over which he has no control. They can be evolutionary, they can be Freud, they can be perverted sexual instincts. The, one of the interesting things about the argument as it lines up is that the moderns, the, those on the scientific side, tend to look at wrongs in terms of an analogy with the body. So even though they're treating the soul, the psyche, their language is of the body. They're treating a disease, not a spiritual disorder. It's a disease. Okay, um, he's sick. Um, the response is a cure, in the same way that it would be if we gave somebody penicillin for a wrong. Before, every man, simply because he was a man, was subject to the same laws. Those laws were an attempt to bring into play the laws of nature and of nature's God. The positive laws, those that are in the book, were an attempt to reflect natural laws, the laws in nature, which themselves were a reflection of God's laws. Now, clearly people abuse those laws all the time. I think, you know, we all, we've all had experiences with people abusing laws of going off the end in the way they applied them. But at least there was some understanding that they were accountable to those laws, um, which came ultimately derived from God. All that changed, he, Lewis is arguing, when he gave up the notion of desert and began to see man as a victim. Now, instead of being subject to judges, who are presumably grounded in the natural law tradition, men have become subjects to experts, conditioners, those who know better than he does, those people who are better than he is because they know, the others don't, and some of whom practice various forms of social engineering. According to the particular specialization of these experts, men could be subject to all sorts of treatment they can be kept in a cure for an endless period of time. They can be um, they can be asked to undergo electroshock therapy or lobotomies. I mean, we've all heard of you know strange things. So that's the argument. Okay. Um, he went on to say um, that what happens is that people become susceptible to whatever the recent theories are, and you know, according to science, the theories change all the time. He says, we know that one school of psychology already regards religion as a neurosis. If somebody had a, um, a patient that believed in God, they would be feel perfectly justified in treating him as being psychotic, of having a problem. That's one problem. Another is that according to our belief, God creates man in his image, that according to Augustine and Thomas, that there's something transcendent to the human soul 
and only God can fully know it. So for an expert to presume to know the soul is to overstep his limits. He, he might be able to help him, but he can't know him fully. Nobody can, unless it's gone. The church acknowledges that in confession. We go to confession throughout our life. We, we keep learning more about our lives, hopefully, as we go on. Here's another question. If, evil is, if man's capable of evil, spiritual evil in the soul, and the sciences don't recognize God or even recognize evil, how would they know what to do with it? If the analogy is the human body, not spiritual evil, what will the scientists do? Those are just some of the issues. I'd, I'd just as soon not go there because we've been talking about them now for two weeks. But I've got this one question that I'd like to spend a few minutes on before we go to abolition of man. Here's my question. Um, if we take the two approaches together, um, is there something peculiar to each one that would close it off from the other? Or is there something peculiar to each one that would open itself to the other? Can the cure therapy approach make a place for the dessert approach? Or is there something about the cure approach that would prevent that from happening? Can the dessert approach make a place for the cure approach? So what I'm asking is, is there a difference in the nature? Can each one of them open to the other? Or is there something about each one of them would close it down from the other? Oh, here, wait, and here was my, here, I mean, this is to an partly answer the question. When we read Boethius' Consolation, you remember, Boethius was angry, upset. He, he was going to be, he was going to be killed, unjustly. That was the great question. How can God, how can a good God allow evil to happen to good men? So a, a, an issue, the central issue of the work was justice and a miscarriage of justice. Lady Philosophy came to him and said, <laughs> you need to be cured. She used a cure, and she kept talking about increasing the dosage of his medicine. She would apply, she was applying a cure approach, taking the approach that as he got stronger, she would give him heavier medicine. So there was an instance in which Boethius was dealing with the question of desert, justice and injustice, but at the center of it, philosophy was offering a cure. So let me just say... Let me try to get this down. Let me turn, narrow it down. Let me say, I believe all the evidence shows us that the desert approach, justice and desert punishment, has always made a place for curing. Philosophy is one of them. Literature is another. We can learn things to help us grow, to learn to see ourselves better so that we can change so that indirectly there's a spiritual help. Our minds, our bodies, our hearts can be helped by what we do, by our learning. I don't, I don't know why everybody's in this class if that's not true. We've been together for four or five years now learning together. Hopefully it's, it's, it's offered a cure of some sort for our, for our problems. So let me, let me close that down. I'm going to just say I, I think the dessert has always opened it. Is that equally true of um, the scientific approach? If you approached a person's wrongs in the spirit of a cure and therapy, 
Um, is there as does that approach make as great a place for the other as the dessert does for cure? Was that clear? Is that clear? Bob. Yes. Didn't uh, Doc kind of, uh, and maybe I got lost last week, and I'm still lost, but didn't Doc kind of address that last week when we were talking about AA and the spiritual and, um, you know, um, you have the spiritual, but you also have a group that gets together for the betterment of one another. And in some cases, medicines used um, to help, which would bring in the science. But she was, because something she said last week really struck me when she, we were talking about that. Does that at all fit into what you're saying? I'm not sure, Kathy. Let me let me see if I can put this more strongly. I I, I argued just a minute ago that I think the dessert approach that that we are responsible for actions, that we have to hold each other responsible, which means there, there are times we have to make a place for punishments right. that we deserve. Right. The, uh, the opening of Lewis's argument, the way he presents it, is the, the people that, and remember that they wouldn't publish his, his article in England. That's how adamant they were about this. Those people were taking the position that the dessert thing is inhuman an expression of vengeance, and their approach wasn't. It was more merciful, more humane. So the question I'm asking is, if you take that first approach, that the proper approach to our wrongs is cure and therapy, does, right. that, does, does that allow for a place for dessert, for punishments, or rule it out? That's, that's my question. Well, I think I'm, I still, even in that frame, um, when you're talking about an alcoholic, I mean, there's punishment there. There's, there's, um, they have to take responsibility to overcome in some respect by either going to a meeting, they have to take some kind of responsibility uh, to affect any kind of cure. And, uh, God, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, and, and they are going to suffer. I mean, there's consequences to their act. And, and there's no way that you're going to eliminate that consequence to their alcoholism. So, am I still on the wrong path? No, 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 no. You, I, I don't think you were ever off it. I mean, yeah. Anybody else? Don, you have any thoughts on this? Well, I think that the, the cure approach uh, works if the person is willing to, uh, you know, do the work that's required, which, you know, means it's a spiritual program. Uh, you got to take responsibility. you got to uh, examine your conscience and uh, uh, make amends. And all these things in the AA program are designed to uh, hopefully get the person away from his bad habits onto better or, or good habits. Um, but the problem with that is it can't be forced from the outside. It has to be, the person has to be willing, the subject has to be willing to do the work and, you know, really, uh, really work at it. And it's hard. Yeah. So that's, that's 
That's Same what, thing with the uh, dessert, you know, there's programs that are offered. There's uh, counseling, group counseling, individual counseling. There's religious programs available. There's educational programs available. Plus, the person has the time to sit back and reflect if he so chooses to reflect on what he's done and, um, you know, but it, again, it's all up to the individual uh, person to to do it. Yeah. It's yeah. something that we can't do for them. Right. They have responsibility. But here, let me, yes, let me just throw this in. I, um, Debbie, I, I see your, wait, hold one, because I just want to, and then I want, Debbie, you've got your hand there. One of the functions of the state, one of the functions of the state is to, with its own a proper authority, Christ given to Caesar, you know, one of the functions of the state is to impose punishments whether a person wants them or not. So if you've committed a crime, and whether you want to, I mean, using Don's example, you know, if you're in therapy for drinking too much, um, one of the things you have to do is go to jail. I mean, you're forced to go there. You don't have a choice. So one of the functions of the state is to apply a force whether people want to accept or take responsibility for or not. Because if they don't, we all know, <laughs> you know, what could happen. But, Debbie, you go ahead. You've had your hand up. Well, you know, one of the problems that I see with the cure approach is it assumes the person then who is um, supposedly who is the object of the curing is defined as a victim and when you're defined as a victim um, I think you lose all um, sense of self you are uh, it's a it's a certain mental framework that that you um, take on and so even even with I mean if, if you've got somebody who is an alcoholic um, and you know they don't get in a car and drive, and they don't—they really don't um, come against. They don't get in a situation where there really is any consequence from a legal perspective. There, and there are plenty of alcoholics who never go to jail. Um, there are victims. I'm. There are people who are in, impacted by the fact that they are alcoholics. I mean, there, there's clearly that. But if the alcoholic looks at himself as a victim all the time, he doesn't see that he's responsible. And so I guess back to the just pure approach is that you can set people up um, that they feel like they don't have any responsibility to change at all. I mean, you can do that. Whereas with the other approach, I really think that there's there's a stronger potential to have have also conjoin it with some curing yeah. options, some things that will help cure that person. Uh, but I think that until you sort of have to cross the line from being a victim to being taking responsibility for yourself. Yeah. For the actions that you're taking and the the havoc that you're causing around you, whether whether you know you may never go to jail, you may never face any kind of consequences like that, but your family uh, may be in complete disarray, complete disarray. So, um, yes to all that. Yes to all. Yeah. Let me just say. <laughs> let me let me if I can just put it. It's interesting without making conclusions in the particular case, 
Um, if somebody is susceptible to alcoholism and keeps driving, say when he shouldn't, um, and he hasn't been caught, he could run over somebody. I mean, some, I mean, that's where you were going, that somebody could suffer from that. What's at issue somewhere in this discussion is this question, are there times when a force is required because without it, um, a person won't have the strength on his own to stop himself from doing something he shouldn't be doing. So somewhere between, in our weakness, we struggle with this thing of applying force and punishments, maybe even misapplying them, but there are times I think when most of us would admit um, that force is required because without it, if a person doesn't have the strength to stop himself, who knows what he could do. Right. At the same time, there are all these questions of free will and you know, if we go back to Boethius for a second, um, if, if my question is, if you, if you totally, I, I think this is my assumption, I, I'd like to hear anybody if they're opposing it. You take the position of the modern humanist who says that, you know, all forms of punishments are forms of revenge. I don't agree with that. I, justice is not revenge. I tried to make that point last time. Justice means giving somebody what's due. If you take away that element altogether and stand in a scientific world and look at the human as a product of forces, then a human being in some ways loses his dignity and he becomes susceptible to whatever the experts say you know, he should do. If you live that way for centuries or time, and we've, we've been under that regime now for a century, there are consequences to it. But at issue is this whole question of in the traditional way of desert, people do things, they're held responsible, they have to somehow bear the consequences. There's a place for cure. The serious question for me is the reverse. For those people who hold the opposite position to think that any kind of punishment is a form of revenge, will they allow for the need for force at some times when people don't have the strength to do it themselves? And I think both Don and, and uh, Debbie were touching on it because in, an, in, in, in safer alcoholics who've been apprehended the court requires that they attend meetings because if they don't, there can be serious consequences. Now, whether they give their will or do all the other things that you know that Don's talking about is another thing. All of us, I think, know that if somebody doesn't learn to give his will at some point to something, he's if he's got a serious problem. There's a problem. But anyway, if um, what's at issue here are these two ways of dealing with um, our our weaknesses, our failings our sins or crimes or our wrongs as human beings and um, and one of the it seems to me one of the beauties of the literature that we've been reading particularly I mean you can go to a lot of them but I'm thinking about Boethius because it's such a good case Boethius is using a cure and he's dealing with an injustice the traditional way if when we read King Lear we're gonna see one of the characters taking on a role in order to help his father to cure him he's gonna play a role um, I think lots of sons and daughters have to assume that role when their parents um, um, get taken over by Alzheimer's. You know, they 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 can't relate to them the way they used to. They they have to they have to disassociate themselves in order to step into another world to deal with somebody who's got Alzheimer's. The the serious question for me is whether those on the other side will can allow give acknowledge 
that there's sometimes when force has to be applied because without it, people very often don't have the self-control to stop themselves. And that's even more true if somebody's evil. What do we do with evil in the world? So the, the, the problems we're touching on, I think, are, are so deep, so real. Um, um, they're at issue in our families, in our marriages, in the culture at large. Um, I think C.S. Lewis has, has put his finger on something really important here. Any other thought you want? Any other thoughts? Jeannie, where'd Jeannie go, Carl? Oh. Any other, any other? Well, Bob, I can agree. I mean, I can see where you're saying, and I think there's a word for it, intervention. Where you somebody's doing such damage to themselves and right, others right. that you have to step right, in. Right, right, right. Uh, and but when you do that, it goes back to the thing that you may you may solve the problem for the instance, but if they don't do the work like God right, said, right. you've accomplished nothing. Right, right, right. And I really think you can go back to. And I'm sure that Dot said it in a way that was really meaningful last week, where you married, you know, the spiritual. You know, you go back to your poem, you know, <clears throat> where the the person's not needing God and their arrogance, they're not needing God. And if you go to the point that in humility, they do need God. They need God in this instance. Yeah, 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 yeah. Deep problems here. If 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 God is involved in the creation of the human soul and there's something transcendent, then the spiritual difficulties that we get into, I don't think, personally, I don't think can always be answered by the state. I think punishments are, I think, I think there are times when it's really important to be, to impose a force. You, I mean, you, for all the reasons we've talked about. But when you think, so, and, and lots of people cave, you know, lots of people, it's a tough, tough problem, and it, it just seems to me if you, if you, if you acknowledge that, that God is involved in the creation of the human soul, it, it, it doesn't get easier. It gets harder and more complex. Um, I, I think it's, I mean, I, I love the relationship between church and state. You know, if, if the state doesn't take on its powers and it gets too soft, crimes increase. Historically, forever, they will. Um, when the church takes on powers it shouldn't take on, <laughs> things go wrong. You know, I mean, um, it, it, the, the relationship between church and state is, throws such a light on the questions that we've been dealing with. Um, to me, they're pretty deep. Anyway, if we can, if we can stop, um, I'd like to turn to Abolition of Man. There's a cheery title. <laughs> What does that say about C.S. Lewis's view? Okay, let's, can we start? Any, any last comments on this, this conflict between a modern, more scientific approach to wrongs and the traditional one? I can't believe all of us have not had an experience where we've had to finally say to somebody, even it may be even somebody we love, stop, mm -hmm. stop, stop, and somehow put teeth into that because if we don't, the consequences could be awful. 
And I know that I'm saying that, I'm trusting all of us know that that's not always easy to do, particularly if it's somebody you care deeply about. It's much easier to say somebody you care about, knock it off. But um, it just reminds you know, me, it just reminds me of the, that the human weakness that we carry and our struggles of dealing with it, it's a great, it's a great grace for us, I mean, that God would allow us the struggle. Did somebody have start start to say something? I'd... I was just going to what you were saying there. I can give a personal story, and you say it's hard. Hard. Uh, my father was an alcoholic, and uh, <clears throat> he got in a situation where he almost killed my my sister and her friends. Mm. He was he got drunk, he got on the wrong side of the road. Well, my sister called my brother. He was gone from home. My brother came and he talked to my father, and he said. Dad, I love you with all my heart. But he said, if you don't do something, I can never allow your grandchildren to come and yep, be with you. Yep, 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 yep. Join the AA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he became very involved. He did have to take medicine that if he drank, he got sick. Yeah. But he overcame it for the rest of yeah. his life. Yeah. And. Yeah. Uh, but I do think that it was a combination of everything. It was a combination of um, being told that there was a problem, a combination of his spiritual life, a combination. And, and so there was an abundance of blessings. Yep. No, I, Kathy, I'm so um, grateful for your courage just in saying that because I, I believe those sorts of things are more common than we know. What is there to say except thank God for your brother's courage that a oh, son... The son had the courage to say, Dad, stop, you know. Yeah. And you know what? Yeah. I've asked myself uh, more than once, would I have had that kind of courage? Courage, yeah, yeah. Okay, let's let's go. Bless you all in your... <laughs> bless you all. I want to start out with this with this question, okay, on Abolition of Man. The, the uh, epigram, or the rubric for the whole book is this. It's in the... before the book starts in the first chapter of the rubric of the first chapter. So he sent the word so he sent the word to slay and slew the little children. You guys all have that in that opening page, yeah? It's the it's the little epigram. So he sent the word to slay and slew the little children. It's from a song. Why did he choose that as the epigraph for the whole Tell me what the meaning of that is for any of you. Deborah, don't shake your head like that. Come on, I want to, what's your answer? Come on. There's a nursery I rhyme. I have not a clue. Oh, yes, you do. I, you're, Jeannie, what, why did he choose that? What, just, just for a minute, just analyze the word. Don't even go into the book. On the surface, what does it say? It seems to me, it seems to me that it's, it's referencing uh, language. That's what the word is. And um, for little children to be able to understand language correctly, it's so challenging that they just can't do it. And so they get slain by, by the word. But I don't know who the he is who sent the word. <laughs> let, let me, let me, let me, by the way, I just want to say. I think the he is educators. Oh, who, who, where's that? Who's that? Who is that? This is Jolie. Show yourself, word. 
Show myself? Show yourself, Jolie. Come in. Where are you? Here's my camera. Hello. <laughs> They're good to see you. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Connect, connect that epigram with the first chapter. What's he saying well, just, in the first chapter that makes sense of that opening quote? I thought if educators are um, presenting language to children uh, in an in inaccurate way, then um, they'll go, they'll start identifying with that method of treating words instead of with a better way of treating words. And then they'll, um, I guess, be resigned to it or just in a bad pattern for the rest of their lives. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it goes so directly to the argument of the first chapter that very often what teachers teach can hurt children. I mean, there's really no better way to say it. What's at issue here is what's being taught in schools. And when, when what's being taught in schools is wrong, it hurts people, particularly kids, because kids are vulnerable. And Done. the younger they are, the more literal they interpret the words. Right, yeah, right, right. They don't have the ability to uh, get the nuances and the metaphors and similes and analogies that people use in everyday language. Yeah, yeah. So words can kill. I mean, it, they can hurt people. And kids are more susceptible because they're younger, they're more trusting of teachers. They have no, I mean, I just think about what's going on with school today, it drives me nuts. I mean, I, I'm assuming it would for you guys when you watch what teachers, I mean, what's, in fact, what Lewis is addressing is, we'll come to it in a minute, is teaching used to be a way of passing on a tradition, of passing on. It's become a form of propaganda and indoctrination. It's leading kids to a doctrine, a, you know, a, a way. So let's take a look at the beginning. Debbie, all I can say is I'm sorry we're not at your house because that wine looks so good. <laughs> I'm going to have some. <laughs> Y'all can come over to my house. <laughs> no, you guys come here. It's your turn. Page 18. Page 18. Um, this is the beginning of his chapter. In their second chapter, Gaius and Titus, he was sent a teacher's copy of dealing with matters of education by these two men. He's trying not to embarrass them. Um, he's trying as courteously as he can um, to take them at their best. But he's presenting an argument that they make, a way of presenting their materials, that raises very fundamental questions for him and for all educators. So he says something about their um, their second chapter, what they were treating. He says at the top of 18. In their second chapter, Gaius and Titius quote the well-known story of Coleridge at the waterfall. You remember that there were two, two tourists present, that one called it sublime and the other pretty. And that Coleridge mentally endorsed the first judgment and rejected the second with disgust. Coleridge, remember, is a 19th century romantic poet. He was a contemporary of Wordsworth. So very close to the modern world. And just as a quick note, both poets were, were aware that in their minds, they were both extremely well-educated men. Both poets were aware that the sciences 
in their minds, I think wrongly, but in their minds, um, co-opted reason. That reason had become, reason was understood to have one kind of mode or power. So they were reacting to the effect of the science, so was Blake, all of the Keats, all of the romantic poets were. And what they did was replace, take the imagination and treat it as if it were a greater power of reason because reason was slipping and the effect of that on man in their minds was murderous. It was already taking away something of the soul of man. So reason was, it didn't have the stature that it once had except for people in the sciences. So Kohler's is one of those men, he's a great romantic poet, and these two authors are commenting on Kohler's uh, example of these two people responding to the beauty of this um, waterfall. Um, Gaius and Titus comment, comment as follows, when the man said that is sublime, he appeared to be making a remark about the waterfall Actually, he was not making a remark about the waterfall, but a remark about his own feelings. What he was saying was really, I have feelings associated in my mind with the word sublime, or shortly, I have sublime feelings. Now I'm, okay, Suzanne's laughing, so... Okay, let me stop there. What's, what's the concern here? I, I, I'm, I'm trusting everybody's read it, but I don't want to be hasty here. What's it's the taken problem? Away from the grandeur of the waterfall. How? What's wrong? By focusing on the speaker or the speaker's feelings. The man said, "When the man said that's sublime, he appeared to be making a remark about the waterfall. Actually, he was not making a remark about the waterfall, but a remark about his own feelings. What he was saying was really, I have sublime or I have feelings associated with my." in my mind with the word sublime, in, in short, I have sublime feelings. Doc, why are you laughing? What's wrong? Because his feelings aren't sublime. What he's saying is that the waterfall makes me think of something sublime. Um, his feelings in that situation would not be sublime feelings. They would be feelings of humility or wonder or... Ah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Not sublime. Right. So they're just... Completely screwed up. Did everybody hear Suzanne? Does everybody see the problem? What they're doing is making an observation that's not uncommon in the modern world. I want to get to the reason why in a second, but does everybody clear that? If you're in the presence of an extraordinary, let's say a, a waterfall that's sublime, it is the feeling that you have inside of you sublime because the thing outside of you is sublime, or are your feeling, I mean, Lewis is making the feeling, what the feeling, the appropriate feeling would be awe or wonder or humility. Somehow it would share in that sublimity. But it's not, your feelings are not sublime. There's something outside of you, and it raises this question. Um, how to put this? How do we understand what happens when we're in the presence of something, when we claim to know it? Because these teachers are, are teaching that when, um, that when the guy said this, what he really meant was something else. So that what they're saying is that whatever, whatever feelings, whatever 
judgments we make about the world outside of us are really only projections of our own feelings or the state of our mind. Lewis goes on, before considering the issues really raised by this momentous little paragraph, we must eliminate one more confusion into which Gaius and Titus have fallen. Even in their own view, on any conceivable view, the man who says this is sublime cannot mean I have sublime feelings, even if we're granted that such qualities as sublimity were simply and solely projected into things from our own emotions, yet the emotions which prompt the projection are the correlatives and therefore almost the opposite of the qualities projected. The feelings which make a man call an object sublime are not sublime feelings, but feelings of veneration. So he goes on to make a couple of conclusions all below. The Green Book will have the schoolboy who reads this passage will believe two propositions. First, that all sentences containing a predicate of values, that is anything making a judgment, um, are statements about the emotional state of the speaker. And two, that all statements are unimportant. It's true that Gaius have said, both of the authors have said neither of these things in so many words. They have treated only one particular predicate of value, sublime, as a word descriptive of these speaker's emotions. The pupils are left to do the work for themselves. Um, middle of page 20, their words are that we appear to be saying something very important. That's their words when in reality we're, we're, we are only saying something about our own feelings. It's that word only. Descartes is at the center of this, if we go back to the 17th century. There's a radical break between what up to that time was called the philosophic realism. It's what the church was anchored to. The things are real, they have a meaning outside of what we make them or not. If there's a sublime waterfall existing, I don't have to be there for the sublimity of that thing to exist. This, you know, it's, it's there, it exists. Um, after Descartes, Descartes says, I think, therefore I am. He makes all being contingent on thinking. When he said that, what he did was separate thought from everything else in the world. Man and nature um, stood apart from each other in a, with a kind of dissociation. That what happens at that moment is um, we believe, and Kant will only take that further. What happens with Descartes and Kant is what we call the beginnings of the idealist tradition. That the only thing we can know are ideas in our heads. We cannot know things. And that's fundamental to this whole discussion. The whole St. Thomas Aristotle, Plato would all say, we can know things, we know them through our senses, um, our senses deliver things to us, we grasp them in our head, the forms of them, the ideas of them, and we know them. Um, Descartes would say, no, we only have ideas. Kant will go farther, say, all things are projections of things in our head. So mental activity and a, a non-mental world, a world of physical things, stand in reproachment at odds. And Lewis is taking that, that issue up in this first chapter. Okay? That's why he takes this example from Coleridge and what the writers do with it. Now let me stop here for a second. 
Is everybody clear what's at issue here before we go farther? Because there are people who maintain, it's the vast majority of people, I think, after Descartes and Kant and modern philosophers, that we have these innate ideas, these innate faculties in the human soul, and we project them on the world, and we can only know the world through them. So we, can't, we cannot get to things outside of us. We're left in ideas in our heads. So everything that we know is really a projection of these inner states, our feelings, our ideas. Any questions about that before we... Any questions about Lewis's argument with the waterfall and what he's saying there? I guess I don't understand the the origin of that notion that uh, it's only something in your head. It's not you observing something glorious and acknowledging the glory. Um, but I guess I don't understand the the other perspective of uh, G and T as he tried to disguise their identities. I don't understand that where that perspective comes from. I mean, Jolie, let me, it's, it's a long, I mean, its roots are deep. They, you know, I was reading, I mean, those of you who've read, well, like some of you haven't, if those of you, I'm not sure if it's, if it's um, philosophic pedigree, you know, the, um, it's hard for me. I, I can't recall philosophically. I know, I know Plato was debating that with the sophist because the, the sophist at his age would have taken the position that, there is no truth. You can make the truth whatever you want it. So you've already got beginnings of it there. A sophist says, there's no truth. You can make it what you want. So make it whatever you want to your advantage. Plato was arguing. That was the great argument of the Republic. It, the, the argument was, justice is what the stronger make it. So people can, justice is determined by whoever's in power. That was the central issue of the Republic. Socrates is showing that's not true. There's an order to things. There's an order to the universe. There's an order to the soul. We have to learn to order. I mean, that's took a whole book to work out that argument. But that belief has been around forever. Um, that's Plato. I can remember a line in Virgil when, remember when Nisus and Aurelius went on that night raid, and one of the two, remember, they're both going to die in Virgil. One of the men says to the other, um, are these just projections? The gods? Are gods just projections of our minds? Do we create them to make? And you know that that's a typical modern view. There are no gods. We make these things up. Uh, Mark said this is a, it's, a, it's a drug. We create these things to make our lives easier because without them, life would be unbearable. So the idea has been around for a long time. Mark, or I mean uh, Descartes and Kant give it a philosophic credence. Uh, credibility because they make rational arguments um, in support of that idea. Descartes did it really powerfully when he said, I think, therefore I am. It's my thought that makes things. Everything's contingent on my thought. Kant will go farther. So it's, 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 it's just so well established in the modern world. I, I think it's more a part of us than we know. You know, we, um, the pr Protestant world, Sola Fidea, faith alone, you can make your faith be the basis of everything. Well, Bob, yeah, I, go ahead. I, I, I 
my problem with reading this is the word sublime. Sure, I mean, the word uh, which? Sublime. Oh, sublime, yeah. It, I mean, which you're basing this whole thing on. I mean, if you've ever looked at a waterfall, I mean, and I've seen plenty of them around the world, I would never say in my entire life that it was, maybe they're awesome. And I have to say that that's what they all are. But, I mean, a waterfall is is got so much energy. It's got it's got so much power. It's... Yeah. It, it drags you into it in this in the sense of of wonder and the like, which uh, you know, where does all this water come from, and what sort of, what does it carry, and a whole bunch of other things, and the, why would why how could even anyone perhaps perceive a sublimity with with regard to that you know that that occurrence? I I, I just find this you know why are we arguing about you know. Their premise to start with is 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 baloney, I guess, in my mind. <laughs> in that sense. Uh, Wait, I, I'm sorry. I'm I'm not, I'm not sure that I'm understanding you, because everything you said, I I don't want to quibble about the word sublime. I mean, I, the, the the question is, is there something amazing there? I mean, you were describing it in terms of amazement. You know, there's the power, the energy, the whatever you're awesome. I can't remember wonderful. All of those. I think the leave the word sublime out of it for a second i think no i i certainly wouldn't disagree with anything you said because i think when i look at a waterfall i think you you and i i mean we've known each other a while you and i would look at that thing and um we would be aware that if we were um let's see how can i put this if we were just sitting at home in our study and um and let's say our room was empty, just in a bare room, and there was nothing much going on in our room, we would know that if we left that situation and went to Niagara Falls and saw the falls, or even, I mean, you've been all the world, and, and we, but you find the, you find the setting. Um, one of your oceanic things, you know, that you'd, you would stand there in the presence of that and feel a wonder and an awe at the power I mean, I myself would have no quibbles about the power, the majesty, the something extraordinary, the energy. You know, we can all find different words. The point that Lewis is making is that we're, when you're, if you leave this room in which nothing's going on and it's very ordinary, and then you find yourself in the presence of something extraordinary going on, what's at issue is you, you just don't say, um, my, my feelings are extraordinary. The point that he's making is your feelings come into adjustment. You feel awe, wonder, reverence. Well, let me put it differently. Let's I mean, just imagine for to, to go let's go let's go beyond this. Let's step out of our world for a moment, if anybody can imagine this, and suddenly be in the presence of God. Okay, this so we look at a universe, our understanding of the universe, it's infinite. It goes on. If we have, if we go to a, um, what do you call them, the museum where they have all the planet, the planetarium, and you look at the the universe, and then add to that all the other universes in the world, and watch what science has done to to make that available to us to get a visual image of that. Okay, I I would think that most of us would have trouble not feeling wonder or awe. Now let's stop. Let's just leave it there. Now go in the presence of God. Be in the presence of God. 
would you describe your feelings as ordinary? Hell no. <laughs> no. I mean, no way, no way at all. I think that's that's his point. He's just saying that whatever is going on outside of it is not a projection of our own feelings, which is a modern position. That what goes on within us comes about as a result of what's before us. And if what's before us is an extraordinary thing, there's a, cor a correlation. Our feelings are adjusted in proportion to that. I'm sure all of us have had moments when we've just wanted to go to our knees or we, we go, wow, overwhelmed with the moment because we just can't find feelings to express what's going on at the moment. Fred, or Fred, Fred, you had a... Fred, you had you had something. Go ahead. Was well, just a comment, I guess. Um, in in reading the book, I, I felt like one of the issues was the the education or lack of it that the children are receiving, and you know, I, Francis and I just did Route sixty six a while back, and. I remember standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon, yeah, yeah. and yep. you know, <laughs> you look at that, and whether you want to use sublime, you know, or awe, or whatever right. it is, right? It's it's breathtaking. But part of that, I think, is the education that you've got going into it. I I mean, I sit there and and you know, you look at it, you see all the colors and everything else, and you know, someone might walk up and say, oh, look at the colors. But if you realize what's <laughs> right. required to to make something like that and the eons that's required to make something like that, then it, then it takes you to a totally different place. I mean, I remember looking at that and saying, there's got to be a God. Yeah. yeah. Because there's just no way man can even remotely attempt to, right. to create something that great. Right. right. So to me, it's... It's it's a collection of life experience and and learning that allows you to feel that awe. Yep. Me, part of what um, you know the author's complaining about here is in in his time frame they're no longer getting that kind of training. Yep. You know whether it's Plato or Aristotle yeah. or yep. Isaac Newton or Albert Einstein or whatever it was. Would you throw a poet in there, please? Of experiences there that you have to have had in order to truly get that that yep. in, incredible yep yep inspiration yep. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I, I'm only sorry you didn't include a poet in that list of yours here. <laughs> I figured you'd do that for me. Here, on page 24, it goes to Fred's point, and it just takes us to the next step of the argument. What he's saying is that if, if all things are nothing more than projections, that what we do is, is I mean, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's making the point that Fred is, that there's a danger that we, we, we end up undervaluing, not learning how to appropriately evaluate what's there. So he's 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 what he's doing is just making the point that I think Fred's building on. If you're not educated, how can you feel this? So his next point on page 24 is he brings in a guy whose name is Orbelius, 
who's, who's only continuing to do what Gaius and Titius do, which is to debunk things. What he's doing is showing that there's a kind of rationalism at work, making of, of human emotions nothing. That it's only this. So he says, and he, it's interesting to me that he doesn't use scientists here, he used poets. <laughs> he says on 24, but it's not only guys, it's, he says, he's using Orbelius, another one. I find the same operation. Orbelius is choosing for debunking a silly bit of riding on horses where these animals are praised as the willing servants of the early colonialists in Australia. And he falls into the same trap of Gaius and Titius, of Wreckish, Seipner, the weeping horses of Achilles, and the war horse in the book of Job, nay, even Br'er Rabbit and Peter Rabbit. He goes on and on. That there used to be this piety that we loved animals. You could grow up reading Br'er Rabbit. Um, we've read the Iliad together. I don't know if you guys remember, at the very end of the Iliad, when um, Achilles dresses for his last bite, fight, he's going to die after that. His horses weep and prophecy. We talked about that when we got there. Um, what happens when you start looking at the world and you debunk it and make it all nothing more than your emotions? Because what rational person would feel those things? Because one of the things that I've been at work at for all this time is to bring a literature to everybody to help. I, my hope is to open all of our hearts, my own included, to learn to feel the things that we are capable of feeling. But so often that we don't learn to feel because of our education. Remember the opening epigram. The word was sent and it slayed the little children. Um, so, so much of, is going on in education to debunk things, to say it's only this or it's only that, that this is, if you were rational, you wouldn't feel these things. 25. The man who really knows horses and really loves them, not with anthropomorphic illusions, but with ordinate love and the irredeemable urban blockhead to whom a horse may be merely an old-fashioned means of transport, some pleasure in their own ponies and dogs, they will have lost some incentive to cruelty or neglect they will have received some pleasure in their own knowingness. All of us know that there are some people who will overlove animals. They will make them too much. We all know people who underlove them. What Lewis is saying is one of the tasks of education is learning to form ordinate emotions, to feel for things what we should. If things were made by God, they should have God's image in them. So we've, we've read... Um, the wind hover, you know, think about all the poems we read together, um, a bird, or, he says, um, um, I'm sorry, the, uh, on page 26, he says, there are three problems that Gaius and Titus have stepped into him. The first one is um, they don't know how to read literature properly. One of the hardest things in the world is to learn to read literature well. I'm assuming all of us have known this. Um, um, the second on page 26, in the second place I think Gaius and Titus may have honestly misunderstood the pressing educational need of the moment. They see the world around them swayed by emotional propaganda, 
we get what pick up a tourist bulletin and you'll get this romanticizing of the islands and you know that's what's motivating motivating most people is greed when you go out to see the um what was the you know route 66 in the grand canyon presumably you want to go to recover some sense of the beauties of nature you know what bob was describing and um and Fran, fred he said um they they think that what they've got to do is um help people get away from emotions because they can be overused they conclude that the best thing they can do is fortify the minds of young people against emotion top of 27. my own experience as a teacher tells an opposite tale for every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity it's making point fred's point how can we help this is the crucial point of this whole chapter how can we help people form good hearts if they explain everything away or sentimentalize them we're not helping 27 but there's a third and profounder reason for the procedure which gaius and titus adopt they may be perfectly ready to admit that a good education should build some sentiments while destroying others they may endeavor to do this but it's impossible that they should succeed do what they will it's the debunking side of their work and this side alone which will really tell because too much of what they do is too rationalistic it it sees itself as preventing trying to curb excesses of emotions Lewis is saying the most important thing of our time and I think he's correct in this is learning how to form good emotions that emotions are good they're necessary they're part of who we are page 28 the reason why Coleridge agreed with the tourists who called the cataract sublime and disagreed with the one who called it pretty <laughs> I mean I hope the difference is obvious was of course that he believed inanimate nature to be such that certain responses could be just or ordinate or appropriate to it than others and he believed correctly that the tourists thought the same the man who called the cataract sublime was not intending simply to describe his own emotions about it he was claiming that the object was which was one that merited there's the whole question of dessert there are some things in the world that deserve greater love than others um suzanne loves flowers a lot i don't believe her love's inordinate she loves beauty she loves flowers I love flowers too. I love my wife more than flowers. So I think she's there's so much more in her than there is in flowers. Um, go down. Um, Twenty nine. When the age for reflecting thought comes, the ability to reflect, the pupil who's been thus trained in ordinate affections or just sentiments will easily find the first principles in ethics that is he'll learn how to think but to the corrupt man they may never be visible at all and he can only make and he can make no progress in the science the point that he's making is we one of the most important things parents can do is learn to teach kids to love things that they should love and hate those things that they should hate on 30 righteousness correctness order the the raw is constantly identified with sacha or truth correspondence to reality he's making the point that all cultures all cultures have some synthesis 
As Plato said that the good was beyond existence, Plato knew that there was something beyond our world that was worth reverencing. Wordsworth, that through virtue the stars were strong. So the Indian masters say that the gods themselves are born of the writ, the, 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 the tra, and obey it. The Chinese also speak of a great thing, the greatest thing called the Tao. It is the reality beyond all predicates. St. Thomas says the same thing. There's no predicate we can attribute to God. We don't know. He's beyond knowing. I mean, we, we can say some things about him, whether he exists or not, but to actually capture him is beyond us. He's beyond um, nature. It's the reality beyond all predicates, the abyss that was before the Creator Himself. It is nature, it is the way, the road, it is the way in which the universe goes on. I think he's, tr he's a Christian. He's using the term Tao because I think he does not want to lose a non-Christian audience. He's trying to make a rational argument. Page 31, this conception in all its forms, Platonic, Aristotelian, Stoic, Christian, Oriental, I shall henceforth refer to for brevity as the Tao. But what is common to them all is something we cannot neglect. It is the doctrine of objective value, the belief that certain attitudes are really true, others really false. To the kind of thing that the universe is and the kind of things we are. Okay. So the problem before us, bottom of 31, because our approvals and disapprovals are thus recognitions of objective value or responses to an objective order, therefore emotional states can be in harmony with reason when we feel for what ought to be approved or out of harmony with reason. Our emotions by themselves are not trustworthy. The question is, are our emotions ordinate? Are they in accord with the reality outside of us? Just to give a point here, I hope I'm not off limits here. When Catherine's brother went to her father and said, Dad, you can't do that, whatever courage, whatever humility that young man had was an appropriate response to the reality outside of him hard thing to do. Um, so, no, bottom 30, no emotion in itself, a judgment. In that sense, all emotions and sentiments are illogical, but they can be reasonable or unreasonable as they conform to reason or fail to conform. Um, on page 33, perhaps this will become clear if we take a concrete instance. When a Roman father told his son that it was sweet and seemly thing to die for his country, he believed what he said. Go down, talking about Gaius and Titius, their own method of debunking would cry out against them if they attempted to do so. For death is not something to eat and therefore cannot be dulce, sweet, in the literal sense. When a Roman father was trying to teach his son courage, he was trying to teach him something he believed that good, that there was some things worth dying for. Even Socrates said that when he went to his death. Where's the, the, on page 20, just go back for a minute, 23, to try to bring this to, a, 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 if we're left with the notion that things are, only have significance because they're projections of our own emotions, our own inner states, Lewis says on 23, talking about, let's say, a father or a teacher trying to help 
a son or students gain courage, honor, love, whatever it would be. There are two men to whom we offer in vain a false leading article on patriotism and honor. One is the coward, the other is the honorable man and patriotic man. None of this is brought home to the schoolboy because remember the teachers are saying, it's just your feelings. I want to go back to this because I've used this example before. It's from Aristotle. Aristotle in his ethics defines virtue as a mean between extremes, always. You can take money, courtesy, courage, whatever, whatever situation. The mean is, the virtue is a mean. Portia lived by that. To struggle to find the mean in whatever situation. The virtuous man knows it. Now let me just make this clear. So, with respect to danger, Aristotle will say, facing danger, there's three possibilities. The brash man, the rash man, will run into it. The coward will run away from it. The courageous man is the only one who will know when and how, under what circumstances and what to do, because he brings a virtuous will, a virtuous will, that will to what he does. Listen to the people using their intellects in the modern political debates and ask yourself if what, if what, they're, if what they're expressing and the way they use their reason are virtues or not. Right? Whether you, because we often hear people using reason in hysterical ways, but keep with my example for a second. With respect to fear, the rash man goes into it, coward runs away. It's only the virtuous man who'll know the difference. Now, a, from the perspective of the rash man, how would he look at the virtuous man? He'd be a coward, right? To the coward, how would the virtuous man look? Rash. Are you seeing it? It's only the virtuous man who would see these things. It's only the man who's been trained in ordinate affections who could know the difference. The others would be blinded by their passions. That's why Lewis is saying, go back to that page for a second. On 23, I think it was 23, was it? Yeah, 23. There are only two men to whom we offer in vain a false leading article on patriotism and honor. One's the coward. Is he going to listen? Go back to the Iliad. Remember Thersites in the opening chapter. Thersites wanted to get out of there. Cowards are going to want to get out of harm's way. The rash man's going to want to go in there as fast as he can for the wrong reasons. There's only one man. There are two men to whom we offer in vain these things. The only one who would fully understand is the man who's been trained in ordinate sentiments. So go to the end again. Um, 34. In education today, there are two things going on. If they embark in this course, the difference between the old and the new education will be an important one. Were the old initiated, the new merely conditions. The old dealt with its pupil as grown birds deal with young birds when they teach them to fly. The new deals them with more as the poultry keeper deals with young birds, making them thus or thus for purposes of which the birds know nothing. It's like his argument on the humanitarian cure. 
In a word, the old was a kind of um, propagation, I would say, an initiation, a um, leading in, in transmi transmitting manhood to men. The new is merely propaganda, it's conditioning. So he says, 35, to conclude, in battle it's not the syllogisms that will keep the reluctant nerves and muscles to their post in the third hour of bombardment. The crudest sentiment, sentimentalism, about a flag or a country or regiment will be of more use. We were told it long ago by Plato. As the king governs by his executive, so reason in man must rule the appetites by means of the spirited element. You guys heard that before? <laughs> I've been drawing that circle on a board for years now. Remember, reason at the top, the appetites um, both, but the spiritedness and the physical appetites. Reason governs the appetites through that middle element, the spirits that have been trained for noble things. The head rules the belly through the chest. The seat, as Alanis tells us, of magnanimity, to be magnanimous, large-hearted, of emotions organized by trained habit into stable sentiments. The chest, magnanimity, sentiment, these are the indispensable liaison officers between cerebral man and visceral man. It may even be said that it's by this middle element that man is man. For by his intellect, he's mere spirit, he's angelic. It's a danger, it's Luciferian. He's mere spirit, by his appetite, mere animal. The operations of the green book in its kind is to produce what may be called men without chests. It's an outrage that they should be commonly spoken of as intellectuals. Go down. They're not distinguished from other men by any unusual skill in finding truth, nor any virginal ardor to pursue her, and did it would be strange if they were. In persevering devotion to truth, a nice sense of intellectual honor cannot long be maintained without the aid of a sentiment which Gaius and Titus could debunk as easily as any other. They would make fun of it. It is not excess of thought, but defect of fertile and generous emotion that marks them out. Their heads are not bigger than the ordinary. It's the atrophy, atrophy of the chest beneath them that makes them seem so. Christ called us to love. And all the time, such as the tragic comedy of our situation, we continue to clamor for those very things we are rendering impossible. You can hardly open a periodical without coming across the statement that what our civilization needs is more drive or dynamism or self-sacrifice or creativity. In a sort of ghastly simplicity, we remove the organ and demand the function. We make men without chests and expect, them, expect of them virtue and enterprise. We laugh at honor and are shocked to find traitors in our midst. We castrate and bid the Geldings be fruitful. So he's saying the task of our age in education is to pass on a great inheritance, a great tradition, to help to learn the order of the soul. Reason rules the appetites by means of that middle element, the love of good things. So um, his concern is principally education what people are doing today without even being aware of it. The, the epigram again, so he sent the word to slay and slew the little children. Um, let me stop. Any questions or comments? We'll 
we'll we'll do we'll try to get through books two and three. I'm not sure what we'll, you know. We'll see, but maybe we can cover both books. Um, be sure you read both books so we can try to cover them. And once we finish with Lewis, we'll start Aeschylus. We're going to do Aeschylus and Sophocles, and then I want to do Shakespeare's Lear. It's it's past time to do that work. But any any comments on Lewis or responses to his argument? What he's saying. Debbie, you haven't been around. What's your response? Well, I really, I really want to hear. What's your response to this? You, I, I know you take these things seriously. Never. I don't want to put you on the spot if you're not. Let the geldings be fruitful. <laughs> God. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> anyway, Fred, just in case, next time you go to the Grand Canyon for an entirely different new experience, play, take a diskette with Beethoven's Fifth. Oh, wow. And as, and as you drive up to go there, play it as loud as you can, <laughs> then get out of the car. <laughs> take a look. <laughs> Sounds like a good you'll idea. See, just, you'll see an entirely, different, an entirely different world. Well, actually, I was going to say two congruent worlds because I think I think to put on the fifth. See, I would say the the fifth is sublime. Grand Canyon is sublime. The two of them together is the is sublime. Oh, it 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 just. I've, everybody I've ever taken there for a second time, and we play that. It was just like God. Why didn't I have it the first time? But yeah. I, by the way, I I would add too. Take Beethoven's um, ninth. Yes, ninth. and that's another ninth. Yeah. And one of the reasons I, I say that this I don't know where you are in this, Bob. We're we're out of time, but I want to say I think the I think the fifth is about death. Bum 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 bum. Yeah. It's death Boy. knocking on the door. Bum 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 bum. When I go to the can Grand Canyon, I don't want to think about death. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are enough people who fall into I, it. <laughs> okay, you guys. Um, it's good to see you all. You, um, I, I, it's probably all, all of you. I want to say my prayers are with all of you that somewhere tomorrow night, your hearts will somehow hold on to a strength because we're in the midst of a crisis. I know everybody knows it. So, um, anyway, um, Let's pray for each other, and um, we'll see you guys next week. All right. Okay. Good night. Thanks. Good night. I don't even know how we did that. Boy, I hope I haven't lost Mike. Mike? Yeah, I mean, he didn't come in to fix it. Um, well, I think we're going to have much less access to Mike going forward. No, I know, but I just, I'm just hoping, Doc, it wasn't the, because I, um, I know that could not have been, what are we doing? I don't know what happened, but I, um, oh, God,